The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Before I pray, let me just ask you to uh, pray for the Elder Summit this weekend. There's an Elder Summit coming on Saturday. The elders have invited uh, Jonathan Lehman in to come and talk about, advise us on, on elder leadership. And, and then the other thing I just want to underline is uh, you should have received a Bible reading card when you walked in. Just, uh, there are reading, Bible reading plans available on the website, and uh, this was an effort to put them in your hands so that you would commit to, uh, to reading the Bible this year in a, in a new or renewed way. So take advantage of the card or the website, or maybe you've already committed to a Bible reading plan. That's great. Father in heaven, This is a glimpse of the Lord's Supper. When Judas had gone out and Jesus gives the disciples in us this new commandment to love one another just as Christ himself has loved us. So we pray for grace as we lean into this text One of the most basic results of our sin against you is our sin and alienation against one another. Adam versus Eve, Cain versus Abel, Jew versus Gentile, the list of hostilities that Paul prayed. And in our day, there are many divisions, none more prominent in the news in America than racial division, alienation, and conflict. So our prayer this morning, this Ethnic Harmony Sunday, is that you would grant us grace to live out the new commandment from inside out, from this church as a local church outward into the world. Give us your grace now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, We are at a unique and sobering time in American church history. Our church is walking and wading through what hundreds of churches in America are going through at various levels, conflict, crisis, loss of trust, alienation, and loss. That's sort of my summary word of the last year, loss, loss. But the fact that the crisis and grief are being experienced in other churches doesn't help with the sense of grief and loss that we feel here at Bethlehem. Polarization and division over racial issues is not the only flashpoint, but is no small part of the turmoil. The horrific 2020 nine-minute video of the killing of George Floyd shook humanity to the core across the world. I saw it once. I will not look at it again. And in the aftermath, countless churches, families, friendships began to fracture over differing convictions 
about race and racism. Here, we've experienced departures of friends and members and leaders who thought we cared too much about racial justice and ethnic harmony, and we lost those who thought we cared too little about ethnic harmony and racial justice, and some left quietly and some left loudly. In fact, I was told by one leader in racial reconciliation uh, in, in the church, I was talking to him on a Zoom call, that we lost people from both sides, and he said, that's pretty unique. It's usually just, in a church, it's usually one side or the other. Hmm. Pastor Tim Keller, with about 40 years of ministry experience, was recently interviewed by World Magazine, and he answered a question about the current conditions seen in the American church. And here's the question the interviewer asked. A lot of pastors are struggling, particularly after the various shifts during the pandemic, People are leaving churches over pandemic restrictions, the election, racial injustice, political differences, etc. Many pastors are leaving ministry. Have you ever dealt with something like this during your ministry? 40 years. Or is this something unique to our time today? Here's what he said. Keller said, I'd say the culture is definitely more polarized than it has ever been. And I've never seen the kind of conflicts in churches in the past that we see today. In virtually every church, there is a smaller or larger body of Christians who have been radicalized to the left or to the right by extremely effective and completely immersive internet and social media loops, news feeds, and communities. People are bombarded 12 hours a day with pieces that present a particular political point of view. And the main way it seeks to persuade is not through argument, but through outrage. People are being formed by this immersive form of public discourse, far more than they are being formed by the church. This is creating a crisis. No, I haven't faced anything like this in the past. Whether Keller's term radicalized is the right word for what's been going on here is a matter of judgment. But the impact on the church of radicalized and polarized social media is undeniable. Well, amidst all this, last February, sensing an emerging division among the elders and among our church, the elders called a summit to pray and talk together, listen to one another, seeking to come to one mind on what to say about, about ethnic harmony and racial justice. And I want to commend to you the statement that we hammered out. We, we, uh, we have it posted online. It's entitled Ethnic Harmony Affirmations and Denials, and there's 10 points to it. And I was going to read it in the sermon, but I don't have time to do that. But let me just read statement six. Because for me, boy, it's right at the core. And it's why we're looking at the new commandment this morning. Statement six reads this, at least in part, it reads this. We affirm God's calling on all Christians to love one another as Christ loved us. 
by means of kindness, forgiveness, and humble self-sacrifice. I mean, that sentence is central not only to racial harmony, it's central to Christianity. I mean, I don't know how you think about racial harmony. We talk about racial harmony, ethnic harmony. To me, it's an it's a aspect of the call on all believers to love one another. We just circle it as one of the areas where we need extra grace. And then, so when I talk about ethnic harmony, I'm talking about love for one another in the church. And when I talk love your neighbor, I'm talking racial justice in the world. The focus of this sermon mainly is ethnic harmony. Talking to us. You know, I, I read that and, and I can hear it. Love one another just as Christ loved you. That's all you're going to say on Ethnic Harmony Sunday? <laughs> Don't we? We need something radical, something that'll bring an end to the sin of racism. If you say that to me, I'll say, you are absolutely right. But you know, programs and politics and education and protests cannot give birth to love. We absolutely need something radical that actually has the power to create a new community of Christ-like love. We need an outpouring of grace where the predominant feature in our church, in our community, would be the love of Christ such that it would be made visible, manifest, glorify Christ as People look at the love that we have for one another. They'd say, gosh, that smells like the gospel of Christ. That's what we need. I mean, I, I, I am, I have a lot of edges in this. And one of my edges is it's not enough to talk about ending racism. We must call one another to love. Just, what kind of community is created by a negative? We must call one another to love. In fact, if you're going to be about ethnic harmony and I don't smell love in it, I don't want any part of your effort. It's not Christian. John 13, 34. The Old Testament had commanded love for neighbor in several places. Jesus goes a step further with his new commandment. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Let's look at John 13. And uh, the context is the Lord's Supper, as I said, the meal that Jesus ate with his disciples before he was crucified, the the night before he was crucified. And lest we miss the connection between what's happening at the Lord's Supper and Christ's love, let's just look. I hope your Bibles are open. Look at John 13, verse 1, the beginning of the passage. We didn't have time to read the whole passage. Now, Before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them 
to the end. Having loved his own, he loved them to the end. So the stage is set at the Lord's Supper that this is about the love of Christ, loving his own, his own people, his blood-bought people, his soon-to-be blood-bought people, his sheep. John 15 says, the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. his own. It's about Jesus' love for his own, how he loves them all the way to the end. Through the Last Supper, showing his love by washing his disciples' feet, all the way to the end, all the way to his suffering, crucifixion, and death in love for us. He loved his own to the end. At this point in the supper, Jesus knows that the end is coming. And Judas is already in the grip of Satan. So what does Jesus do at the supper? Imagine, he knows he is going to be torn apart the next day, beaten, nailed to a cross, stabbed, crucified, he does not gather his disciples around him saying, Brothers, look, I'm, really, I'm really hurting here. I'm troubled. Uh, things are going to get really bad for me. Can, can you get a hot towel, put it around my neck, fix my favorite meal, serve me, comfort me, tend to me, stand up for me, defend me? He doesn't do that at all. I just think about it. When you're hurting... Aren't we tempted to selfishness and self-protection and anything but love? But look at him. John 13, 3. Knowing that, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from the supper, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Jesus, the one to whom all authority had been given, given authority over all things. The Father had given all things into his hands, the text says. Authority to lay down his life, authority to take it up. On his way back to the Father, he humbles himself, putting on a towel. The disciples' feet are dirty. And there's no servant around to wash their feet. Jesus sees the need, puts on the towel, basically says, watch me. Love like this. And he stoops down and washes the feet of the disciples. He who has the greatest authority takes the lowest place of the slave. He who has the greatest privileges as the Son of God humbles himself. Though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor. In love, he served the disciples by washing their feet. Jesus says in verse 12, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. 
If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. So there's one picture of what loving just as Jesus has loved looks like. Humble servanthood, need-meeting, love for one another. But that's not the end of Christ's love. Verse 21, Jesus tells the disciples quite plainly, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Hearing this, the apostle John, close to Jesus, John the apostle wrote this gospel, the gospel of John, tells us this in verse 23. Uh, One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus, of whom he was speaking. So that disciple leaned back against Jesus and said, Lord, who is it? Before we get to the answer, it's striking to me John's self-description. You know? He could have said, I. One of the disciples, me. I was reclining. No, he says, the disciple whom Jesus loved. He didn't say his name, John. He didn't say brother of James. He didn't say son of Zebedee. He said the disciple Jesus loved. (laughs) I think that's glorious. He has a self-identity as one loved by Jesus. And and it's no surprise. I mean, I don't think it's a stretch to say what I just said because you read the Gospel of John. The glory of God is power profoundly displayed in the love of God for us in Christ. So the book of John says there are other aspects to the glories of God that are displayed in the cross. But in John, love is a big one. Go to 1 John. The disciple whom Jesus loved writes all about the love of God and all about how God's love ought to be played out and displayed in in practical love for one another. He knows himself to be the disciple whom Jesus loved. How do you know yourself? What's your self-understanding? I hope it's like Paul when he says, the life I live, I live by by faith in the Son of God who loved me. That's how I live. That's who I am. Say more about that later. Well, Jesus went on to identify the betrayer, Judas. Satan entered Judas, and Jesus told him in verse 27, what you're doing, do quickly. And even though Satan's inside of him, Judas obeys. Satan obeys. Jesus Judas heads off into the night and the wheels are set in motion for the crucifixion. 
the next day. Verse 31. When he, that is Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Now, the mission for which Jesus came was at hand. So he says, now, now the Son of Man will be glorified. That's the reason he came, to give himself a ransom for many. And in his death for sinners, for his people, Christ will be glorified and God will be glorified in Christ. So you think, well, how is the glory of God revealed in the suffering and crucifixion and death of Christ? And I believe the answer here in John is that the suffering and crucifixion and death of Christ manifests the glory of the love of God. Remember 316? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever would believe in him would have everlasting life. It's love. That's why in the word then that Jesus turns to his disciples, they can't follow him, but he's got a command for them. And what's the command? I could say it this way. As God is glorified in the death of Christ, as, as rich in love and forgiving and saving, so also, disciples, you glorify Christ and God the Father for his love by loving like that. That's the connection Verse 34 is the new commandment. The new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, so also you are to love one another. And the glory of Christ's love through us is to be so real and so obvious that verse 35 adds, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. I mean, if that explanation of what I see there in uh, the connection between the glory of the love of God displayed on the cross and the new commandment, that's confusing. I think John says the same thing in his first letter in 1 John 4, 9. I'll read it. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him in this is love not that we have loved God but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins beloved if God so loved us we also ought to love one another For no one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God abides in us 
and his love is perfected or made complete in us. Well, there's the new commandment. There is no, there is no ethnic harmony without John 13, 34 in the church. There's a lot of things I could talk about in this time, but I think it's essential, it's core to talk about this. Talk about this. Christ has loved us. Therefore, love one another just as Christ has loved you. I don't think there's anything more core to ethnic harmony. I pushed back and I made a rambling list of thoughts and applications and implications that came to my mind from thinking about the new commandment in this passage. I'll hold them out to you. I'll try to do this fairly quickly. Number one, ethnic harmony requires supernatural love. Receiving the love of God for us in Christ is the continual source of supernatural love for one another. I mean, Jesus explains it that way in John 15, 9. As the Father has loved me, the Father's loving Christ, pouring his love in Christ, so have I loved you. Christ loving us, pouring his love into us. Therefore, love one another as I have loved you with the divine and supernatural and awesome and limitless love of God. It takes supernatural love. It takes supernatural love to love anybody. (laughs) Really, you know that. (laughs) But all the more when our culture and context makes it harder and more challenging and more touchy. But the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And Christ calls us by example and his ongoing grace and love for us that we would abide in his love, receive his love, and thereby be empowered to love others. That's the first one. Ethnic harmony requires supernatural love. Ethnic harmony requires, this is number two, a humble mindset. You know, I just draw this from Christ washing his disciples' feet, humbling himself. Philippians 2 lays it out so clearly, and for the sake of time, I don't have time to go there, where Jesus calls us, or where Paul calls us to have this mind that is yours in Christ Jesus. What's that mind look like? Jesus emptied himself and he humbled himself to the point of death on the cross. So you humble yourself, lay down your rights and privileges and status and whatever, 
and humbly serve one another in love. Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Sacrificially. That's number two. Ethnic harmony requires a humble mindset. Number three. All Christians are called to ethnic harmony. The command is to us all, not to some. Why do I raise my voice? This is a pet peeve. <laughs> Kempton and I were, Kempton Turner and I, Pastor Kempton who spoke last week, we were at a, a racial harmony event and, and I don't know, after about a day and a half, I leaned over to him and I said, they're not talking to me. And he said, well, they're not talking to me. In other words, all the conversation at this racial harmony ethnic event was directed at white people. Didn't matter the color or ethnicity of the speaker. It was all you white people. And Kim and I are sitting there like, we, mixed race, him, African-American, minorities, we need to be talked to. What would I say? <laughs> I'd say, if you're a minority, love one another as Christ has loved you. If you're majority culture, I would say, love one another as Christ has loved you. And everybody's got to figure that out, what that means particularly. But it is a, a gigantic command of Jesus on his people. All his people. And I think it goes sideways if anyone feels excused from the work. In this regard, I've so appreciated George Yancey. You, probably, you might not know him at all. The bookstore has uh, one of his books called... Uh, Beyond Racial Gridlock, which he wrote several years ago. He's going to come out with a new one in March of this year. I so appreciated George Yancey. He's a sociologist at Baylor University. He's a Christian. And uh, he, he holds up a model for racial recon reconciliation that's different from the models that have been on the table. And he calls it a mutual responsibility model. I like this. Read a quote from him from the book Beyond Racial Gridlock. It is a concept that takes seriously the Christian teaching of human depravity. All of us are tainted by sin. The mutual responsibility model does not ignore the historic and contemporary, con and contemporary, contemporary damage done to people of color by the majority but it also does not absolve minorities of responsibility. We work to develop racial relationships based on our reconciliation with God. That's number three. All Christians are called to ethnic harmony and to love one another as Christ has loved us. Number four. Ethnic harmony, comma, Love for one another, comma, gives evidence 
of authentic conversion. I'll just read 1 John 4, 7 and 8, where John says it. Beloved, let us love one another, for love comes from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Number five, real ethnic harmony conveys the graces of the gospel to others. Real ethnic harmony conveys the graces of the gospel to others. What I'm getting at is that a couple of verses just scream in my mind here with the the calling that we are to live out in love horizontally the graces that we've received vertically, right? My, one of my favorite verses in life shaping and aspiration, Ephesians 4, 32, be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved, as beloved children, and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. Me here going back and forth and back and forth. Let me focus on forgiving. Be forgiving because you have enjoyed the forgiveness of God. How many times? Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him, Peter says? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Is that not like the love of God, the forgiving love of God for us? Show it to others. Colossians 3.12, again. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must forgive. I mean, I hope you don't have the mindset that I'll forgive when they deserve it. There will be no Christian community. There will be no, you must be disciples of Jesus because he doesn't forgive like that. Number six. Real ethnic harmony reconciles people rather than alienating them. Christ came and reconciled us 
to God and to himself by his own blood. We are called to be reconcilers in this world, reconciling people to God and reconciling people to one another. Another aspect of what Christ has done is a reconciler. He has reconciled us both, Jew and Gentile, in one body to God. So two kinds of reconciliation in play biblically. And I, I was helped by a description. I'll see if I can give it justice. Um, I'd never listened to Dahadi Lewis before. He's a pastor of Blueprint Church in Atlanta. I was at an event for church leaders in November, and, and he, he, he talked about you know, some people in the work of reconciliation are advocates, I'd say reconcilers, and he would say, the, there's another kind of person that's called an aggravator. Let me start with the aggravator. This is uh, from his book, did I tell you the name of it? It's called um, Advocates, is the name of the book by Dahadi Lewis. He says, I'm going to use the term aggravator to describe any type of engagement where the goal is not reconciliation. A person who engages issues or people without a heart set on reconciliation will only intensify division and produce greater inflammation that does not lead toward unity. You can think of it like throwing gasoline on fires of division. Aggravators only make it more severe. And he has, I think, three different categories, but he illustrated two of the categories with ping pong. And, and he, when he said this, I thought, ah, that's very helpful. Uh, and I try to communicate it to you. He said, like, aggravators are like, like two kinds of ping pong players who get together to have a ping pong match. And you know what you do when you're kind of warming up for ping pong? You're going to have a match. You kind of just do this nice little gentle volley. You're like, okay. Right, you know, it, it just starts like that. And he says, aggravators come to the table, got the ball, and they go, bam! That'd be one way to aggravate the game. He says, there's another kind of aggravator. And it would be the, you know, so that the other person's gonna, you the ball, and it goes, and you just stand there. <laughs> That's aggravating. <laughs> So, in contrast to over-the-top aggression, which shuts down the work, and over-the-top passivity, which shuts down the work, his word is, may we be advocates, reconcilers. I'll give you his definition. Advocates advocate for reconciliation to Christ and to his body. If the goal of someone's advocacy is anything less than reconciliation, then I would argue it is not biblical advocacy. The distinguishing mark of an advocate is a heart whose goal is reconciliation. I just, I gotta tell you, we were sensing Division in the lead team of the Treasuring Christ Together Church Planting Network. About eight or so pastor leaders were sensing this about a year ago. Like, I'm feeling the fracture. 
And you know what we did? We, we called a meeting. Kempton Turner and I were asked to lead a meeting somewhere to talk about this, to talk together. And, and what we did is, is we went to the National Museum of Peace and Justice in, Bern, in, in Montgomery, Alabama. I've never been to Montgomery, Alabama, and uh, you might know what's there. There's, there's a new national memorial done as well as the Vietnam Memorial in Washington, D.C., and what it memorializes is some 4,000 extrajudicial lynchings that have taken, a pla- taken place in American history with these iron boxes, almost like coffin-like boxes, that as you move through the memorial, they start on the ground, and as you walk, the floor goes down, and they get higher and higher. And on these boxes are the names, if there are no names, of men and women, black men and women, who were lynched outside the court system, usually by a mob. So you just walk through this county by county, all the counties in the United States. And then I'm looking for Minnesota, and I find, is it St. Louis County, Duluth, where at the beginning of the 20th century, three men were lynched, three black men were lynched. Just think about, how did that impact my dad when he was growing up? Minneapolis. So we're just, we we called 10 10 leaders, 10 pastor leaders together, and we thought, well, Let's get together and let's, let's share an experience uh, of American history. We'll, we'll do some learning. There's a museum to learn some facts. And we spent the morning there and then spend the afternoon kind of taking in this memorial, walking through it and talking. And then we spent about 24 hours talking. And you know what God did? He brought us together. He brought us together. Nobody was shouting at anybody just walking and talking. In, in Dahadi's illustration, we were playing ping pong. <laughs> we were talking back and forth and back and forth, and God brought the lead team together, and it was a grace. And actually, Kempton and, and I have been asked to do it again this spring, so we'll try to make that happen again. What was the point? Racial harmony reconciles, not alienates. Number seven. I just draw this by from John, the disciple who, whom Jesus loved. Racial harmony, ethnic harmony, is advanced by a gospel identity. You know, would that all of us would have this, we've called it in the past, a super identity in Christ that, that's big and settled and hangs over everything that defines us. You know, uh, you're black, I'm white, you know, you're, you're, you're Asian, you're whatever it is, but we'd all have this super identity that would define us more than all those particular expressions of our identity. I'm loved by Christ. And that that would shape all the other identities. 
that would shape how I live as a mixed-race person or how you live in your ethnicity and how you, how, even how you live all the identities that you have, you know, what, in work or father, whatever. I just, I, I love the thought of who am I? Well, I'm loved by Jesus. That's who I am. It's radical. What if people don't treat me with love? I'm loved by Jesus. What if people reject me and malign me? I'm, I'm loved by Jesus. What if I've been mistreated? I'm loved by Jesus. What if it seems like the whole system is against you? I'm loved by Jesus. What if I don't measure up the demands of others? I'm loved by Jesus. What if I sense the condemnation of the devil? It's a lie. I'm loved by Jesus. What if I don't fit in racially or any other way? I'm loved by Jesus. I belong to him. What if people despise you because of your ethnicity or color or nationality, well, I'm loved by Jesus. I'm loved by Jesus. Believing that you are loved, really loved by Jesus, will make you strong in grace as you abide in his love and absorb the love of God for us in Christ day in and day out. And you know what? No matter how people treat you, you will love one another as Christ loved you to the glory of God, to the building of ethnic harmony in the church, and to the loving our neighbors as we have occasion and opportunity and calling to make the world a more just place to live. Let me pray. Father in heaven, thanks for your word. So love the nuclear power of the love of Christ put within us. It's amazing. You have loved us with an everlasting love. The love of the Father and the love of Christ is in us. Uncork it, Lord. May this year, 2022, reveal new expressions of your love played out between us as we live out the new commandment here at Bethlehem. I pray these things for the glory of your name and for our joy and the joy of the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. 
Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.